Mount Kilimanjaro, Obama White House, Activism and Discipleship. Today on The Pursuit, Adam Taylor. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Adam Taylor. Adam is the new president of Sojourners, a network of progressive Christians focused on the biblical call to social justice. You may have read their magazine or been on their website, but before that, Adam was leading the faith initiative at the World Bank, leading advocacy at World Vision US, and leading the mission at Global Justice. In 2009, he was selected to the first class of White House Fellows for the Obama administration. His heart for justice has taken him around the world and back, but it was his heart for pursuing God that brought him close to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. Okay, so Adam, tell us where you grew up. Certainly. So I grew up in a place called Bellingham, Washington, which is about two hours north of Seattle. Yeah. It is really close to the Canadian border and lived there until I was 16. And then when I was 16, got uprooted pretty suddenly. And uh, like that's the middle, middle of high school. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was not, I'm not too happy about it at the time. Although it actually turned out to be one of the best things that happened to me. And, but basically my mother who kind of rose up in the ranks of administration positions at the at Western Washington University got offered the vice president student affairs job at University of Arizona. Wow. So we went from the temperate, beautiful Northwest to the blazing, beautiful desert. <laughs> and it could not have been more of a contrast. Yeah. So I finished high school in Tucson. And I really do claim both the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, and the Southwest as home. And I really huh. have grown to love, love both the desert and the the Northwest. What was your experience growing up in those areas, whether it be Washington, the first 16 years, and then Arizona? Yeah, well, let me backtrack a little bit because it's kind of an important story for my life and some of the things I feel called to, to understand how we got to Bellingham, Washington. So yeah. I come from a biracial background. My mother is black. My father is white. They met in a PhD program at Ohio University in psychology. Actually, my dad was my mom's statistics tutor. <laughs> Fell in love in part because uh, my mother took this exam and it was my mother and another white male student who were tutored by my dad uh-huh. and took the exam and passed it with blind colors. And the, the faculty administering the exam accused my, mo- my mother of cheating. Oh, gosh. Without having any proof. And so my dad basically stood up to my, in my mom's defense and forced the faculty to administer the test again with him present. And so she passes a second time with flying colors. And I think that kind of experience of my dad fighting for her really ingratiated <laughs> to my mom. Yeah. And uh, so they fell in love. And it was a very controversial time for an interracial couple, as yeah, sure. you can imagine. And they actually broke up a number of times and pretty much it ended the relationship. And my mom, she grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and okay. she moved back to Louisville to finish her dissertation. And my dad had finished everything, gotten his PhD and was looking for teaching positions. And so he was sitting in a diner and was just feeling anguished that they weren't together. And that kind of huh. racism, made a lot of racism to kind of interrupt and interfere with their relationship. And yeah. so he started thinking about where, where in the country could they start a life together where racism wouldn't be the dominant factor. And 
So we start, got a pencil and just started crossing out states all across the country. And I don't want to offend anyone listening, so I won't tell you all the states he crossed out. Yeah. You can imagine which part of the countries went first. Yeah. But he basically ended up with three states, Washington State being one of them, where he felt they could create a life together. Sure. Where again, you know, the culture was more inclusive and, and race wouldn't be the dominant factor. And so he only applied for teaching positions in those states. And so the first university to invite him to interview was Western Washington University in Bellingham. And so he went up there interviewed, knocked it out of the park, and they offered him the job on the spot. Wow. A teaching position. He said, I can't accept this teaching position unless you can find a position in your counseling department for Sandra Lawson, which is my mother's maiden name. Wow. And I don't know how he did this to this day. Basically negotiated a job for my mother without her <laughs> actually doing an interview. Called her up from Washington and was like, you wouldn't believe how beautiful it is here. I believe we could create a life together here. And my mom was like, I haven't talk to you for weeks. What, what, what is going on? <laughs> and it's like, I don't want to propose over the phone, but we, I love you. We, we need to be together. Oh my! And so they got married months later and started a life together in Bellingham, Washington. And then just coming full circle with the story, my mom got offered the vice president position at University of Arizona. She became the first black woman to be a vice president at U of A. She went down an interview and they loved her, offered the position. And she literally said... She demanded a job for him. That's right. <laughs> exactly <love> right. <laughs> <laughs> Can't take it unless you get a tenure professorship to my husband, Kit. And so, yeah, it all came full circle. Oh my gosh. When I moved to Tucson, the area that we lived in didn't have a high school. They're building a new high school in that area. Okay. So I had the privilege, in a sense, to choose any high school in the city that I wanted to go to. Wow. And... I intentionally chose probably arguably the most racially diverse high school in the city. That was a pretty even combination of black, uh, Latino, Latina, and white and Asian. Yeah, less Asian, but but you know strong, large populations of white, Latina, and black. And for me, it was just a cultural immersion, mm. and it made me realize that my biracial background really was a gift in many ways mm. that enabled me to be a bridge builder. And so I got really active in this organization called Apex that had a mission to try to get help empower uh, students of color to yeah. not only set their sights in college, but get into college. So Adam, what is it about you that at such a young age, you're still looking to correct injustices? Because, you know, most 17-year-olds are just looking for the next party. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think partly because of my parents' background uh -huh. and just part of, partly based on how I grew up and who they are, they instilled in me this very deep and abiding belief that I was, that we're all made in the image of God and that that diversity in, that is expressed in the human condition, if you will, is just a beautiful strength and asset and not a liability or a weakness. Yeah. And they really also kind of instilled in me that my generation, Generation X, which I want to out you on your age, but I think you may yes. be close to, yes. <laughs> inherits the, we, we inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights struggle. Hmm. And even though I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe my parents as like, you know, radical activists, they are very centered in their values and they're very committed to racial inclusion and racial justice. And of course their marriage certainly reflects that. Yeah. And so I just became mesmerized at an early age of the civil rights movement. And I started to realize that Dr. King and so many others, I mean, Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and John Lewis, had such a broader, expansive understanding of the civil rights movement. You know, sometimes I think we freeze, freeze frame the movement in Montgomery and in the kind of fight for yeah. civil rights. And we forget that King was assassinated 
helping to organize sanitation workers who were demanding a living wage. Hmm. He understood that the next frontier of the civil rights struggle was going to be around economic justice. And he also spoke out, you know, quite vehemently against militarism in the Vietnam War and lost a lot of popularity as a result. And so, you know, I just think that that bold vision, particularly of the vision of the beloved community, which has been this kind of animating moral vision that has certainly captivated my life. And it's actually, I can share more about this, but it's literally a book that I just wrote about, I wrote, (laughs) it's it's kind of focused on the beloved community that has kind of been this driving force through my life. And, you know, I got pretty frustrated with some parts of our generation who you're right, like wanted to party or they wanted to only make money. They kind of had this careerist get mine mentality. Yeah. Or the part that doesn't get talked about enough is that some of them started to replace service with civic activism. Hmm. And don't get me wrong, I am a huge believer in service. I'm actually a member of the same fraternity as Dr. King. It's called uh-huh. Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And our motto is, first of all, service, of, service to all, we shall transcend all. Mm-hmm. But service is very different than civic activism, and it can't be a substitute for it. And so, you know, I think this is a particularly acute condition within the church where you know, particularly within more evangelical circles, you know, there's been a very strong emphasis on the individual and individual salvation. And that's extremely important. That's a starting point, right? But it doesn't end there. Our salvation is designed to enlist us in God's kingdom building purposes in the world. And so I think, you know, part of what I've tried to do is help to overcome what I've described as a pathological individualism within the church and understand that ultimately faith is communal. It's individual and it's communal. Right. And we're called to be God's instruments of justice in the world. Yeah. So I just want to ask you, you brought up this, this distinction between service and civil action. And for those of us who haven't been thinking about this and writing books about it, I would love for you to really just put a fine point on sort of examples, concrete examples of what the difference between what those look like. Absolutely. So one thing I'll emphasize is that I never want to pit service versus political activism, civic activism against each other. I see them as kind of dual sides of the coin called discipleship. Yeah. (laughs) Both are a part part and parcel to to discipleship of following Christ. So I'll give you this example. Service often helps to meet immediate needs. You know, it reflects the call of Isaiah to feed the hungry, Mm. to care for the person that's homeless, to help someone who's you know, dealing with an addiction, get the recovery and treatment that they need. Right. All those things are beautiful expressions of service and they're absolutely necessary. And they are kind of a glue that holds our communities and society together. But that is very different than civic activism that so often addresses the root causes of injustice right. and so often addresses systems and policies and structures and attitudes that often perpetuate and cause injustice in the first place. And just to give a concrete example, using the civil rights movement as, as, a, as kind of a prototype, yeah. no amount of community service was going to defeat and dismantle Jim Crow segregation. Right. Like you couldn't service your way into the right to vote. Right. Couldn't service your way into ensuring Black Americans could drink at the same water fountains and sit at the same lunch counters. That required a change in the law, a change in policy, and also, you know, I would argue, a change in attitude. 
that's the side of justice that I think often gets the short end of the stick within the church. Yeah. I think we jump to the individual relationships. And again, that's really important. But it is also kind of reflective, I think, in the disconnect we're seeing in America today, where you know so many white Christians in particular just don't see systemic racism. Right. They don't see systemic injustice. Right. They think of racism as you know saying mean things and holding offensive beliefs about prejudices toward a, a different race. And yeah, that's a part of it. But the more insidious part is the way in which power and resources have been attached uh-huh. to race throughout our history, and that continues to show up in the present. It's about addressing and, and dismantling some of the systems and the policies that have been have become so racialized. So I'll give you a prime example, one that's been kind of frustrating to watch, actually. So in the, the heat of the, the summer, in the midst of the pandemic, you know, we saw the horrific murder of George Floyd and of Maud Arbery and Breonna yeah. Taylor, and it sparked what many refer to as a racial awakening, but that awakening was very partial and it was very selective. If you look at some of the, the polling that PRI, polling firm that kind of specializes on religion, did over the course of the summer, uh-huh. they found that it did all the protests and you know, all of those high profile killings did shift public opinion among some white mainline and white Catholic voters and Americans. Yeah, yeah. But among white evangelicals, it basically didn't change their perspective about systemic racism. The majority, vast majority, still thinks that police violence or police abuse is only an issue, you know, a set of isolated incidents yeah. and not a part of a broader pattern. No, that's not going to be easy to change, but I think part of it is, is lack of relationship that you know, we live such segregated lives and we don't have real relationship with people from another race. But it's also, I think, a real deficiency in our theology. We have a theology that, again, is overly individualistic and overly emphasizes the, the kind of personal and interpersonal and doesn't focus enough on the systemic and right. on the even powers and principalities that so often drive injustice. Going back to your childhood, your identity as biracial, I, I guess I'm wondering, is your identity as biracial different than if you had been black, but, you know, two black parents? I don't know. I don't know how to word this, but do you think your identity- I, as- I, think, I think I know what you're asking. So yeah. I'll always take a stab at it. So I think there's lots of ways in which my identity as being biracial impacted how I saw the world, how I saw divisions within our country, yeah. kind of how I was able to enter into si- certain situations. Again, I mean, I kind yeah. of emphasize that I do feel like I've been able to be a bridge builder. Yeah. And I'm not trying to make it sound like it's always been easy. Ooh, sure. Like sometimes it's made me feel like it's difficult to feel as you know, included or as at home in one particular community. I mean, I have sure. particularly over the course of my life, like very much found my cultural home within the black community. I attend and worship at a predominantly black church. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, my wife is originally from Jamaica, but is black. But I've never felt like that had to come at the expense of my white identity. And, uh-huh. you know, there's lots of ways in which I feel like I've tried to be that translator and I've tried to be that bridge. It's a little different for me. And just, just to be very kind of honest, I mean, I am pretty light. My hair is pretty straight compared to many other biracial children. And so uh-huh. at first glance, like a lot of people think I'm Puerto Rican, you know, I, I can pass for lots of different <laughs> ethnic and, <laughs> and racial identities. Yeah. And so just in terms of like how people see me, a lot of people, if they don't know me, might 
see me or assume that I am, you know, Latino rather than black. Uh Um, So, I mean, that's also been kind of an interesting dynamic over the course of course of my life. But I think what's been most important to me is that I have, you know, really tried to embody this commitment to building an America where neither privilege or punishment is viciously tied to skin color or race or ethnicity or even gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, the future. And it's always puzzles me just putting this in like a more of a, a faith and a theological context. If you are so afraid of what the kingdom of God is ultimately going to look like. What does that mean for your faith now? Like, uh-huh. I don't know how many people are going to be extremely jubilant when they get to heaven and they see <laughs> that people of all different races and backgrounds right. going to be, you know, in one unified, joyous worshiping of God. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's pretty clear what heaven's going to look like, at least everything yeah. that I've read in scripture. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't we want to recreate that on earth? I mean, literally, our Lord's prayer teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, right? Right, right. We are meant to yank pieces of heaven and try to bring them to earth and live our lives as though it models heaven. So, like, it, it just, you know, I'm, I'm saying this part in jest, but, you know, there's a serious side to it. The, the kind of malpractice of white supremacy, which is seeped into our theology. And and Mm. sadly, the way Christianity was used to justify slavery and white supremacy in the first place Mm. is is just a major, major uh, insidious impediment that I think we still are grappling with and that the church in particular has to overcome because ultimately it is harming the very cause of evangelism. It's harming the Christian witness in the world. And it's, you know, dividing the body of Christ. And so, yeah, yeah I, I'm very passionate about kind of the work that needs to be done. And, and you know, if, if my biracial background can enable me to, to do that in some ways that it might not lend itself to others, I'm certainly anxious to, to use whatever kind of gifts and skills God has given me. So you graduate high school, you go off to college. And college, I think a lot of times is place where people sort of find their activist self. Mm. Yeah, at least it was for me, you know, I went to college in New York City. And so, yeah. so I guess I'm wondering what does, what does college look like for an already activist Adam Taylor? Good, good question. So, I mean, I definitely think that college kind of supercharged my activism in a sense. Right, right. Let me explain a little bit of how I ended up at Emory University. So, you know, it, it was kind of a a shoe-in to go to the University of Arizona. Both my parents worked there. Right. I would have gotten a full ride. They basically sat me down about a year before my senior year and you know, basically said that my older brother had exhausted their entire college fund. Um, he had just finished up at the University of Puget Sound. And you know, no, no diss to my, my brother. I love him dearly. But you know, at the time, that was kind of hard news to swallow. Sure. But in some ways, it lit a fire under me and it forced me to look for academic scholarships around the country. Okay. And there aren't a ton of, there weren't a ton of them then, but Emory University had one called the Wooder Scholarship, which is funded by a former CEO of Coca-Cola, okay. and who's a major patron of Emory University. And literally at the last minute I found out about the scholarship program, I applied, it was kind of a long process, but was fortunate enough, blessed enough to get it. So I got a full ride to Emory. And wow. I wanted to get out of Tucson, I, I realized that I love change. I love to kind of experience new things, be around different people. Yeah. And so I was ready for more of that. Uh, Tucson just whetted my thirst for that. And so I ended up arriving at Emory. And on that first Sunday I was there, I remember it really vividly. I kind of took a little pilgrimage to Ebenezer Baptist Church on a Sunday. Okay. And I heard the pastor at the time give a brilliant sermon that combined 
a personal, redemptive, transforming relationship with Christ with the commitment to transform the world and to fight for justice. And it was like these two things were just seamlessly woven together. And I broke down and emotion. And that's when I joined the Baptist church. I I grew up kind of Presbyterian and then went to a congregational church. And, you know, I was a Christian, but it was kind of a a nominal faith. It was, you know, a little bit too shallow for my liking and kind of what I know Uh faith to be now. When I got to college, like, that's when I feel like I did a deep dive and I ended up joining Ebenezer Baptist Church, the spiritual home of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And at Emory, you know, I definitely kind of got thrust into activism in part because, you know, it was a fairly, you know, it's a prestigious liberal college, but it has this Southern heritage built within the university. And there is a strain of Emory that is, you know, kind of reminiscent of the old South. I mean, literally just one example, we had a, a white fraternity, probably white fraternity that I think it was Kappa Alpha, but forgive me if I, my memory isn't getting that right. Um, but, but basically they would, you know, for a while, you know, flew a Confederate flag wow. then they were pressured to take that down. They had a kind of Southern heritage ceremony each year where they literally would like, you know, dress up in colonial costumes and bring out these cannons. And it just happened that my black fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, had a house that was, was located right across the street from them. Oh, man. And so when they did this each year, they had these oh, like cannons man. that were just coincidentally pointed <laughs> right at our house. So you know, needless to say, like there, there were these underlying tensions at the university at the time. And, and to be clear, you're not 70 years old. This is not in the 50s. Like This is taking <laughs> right, place right. in the 90s. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah, 1994 to 98. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question that like my college experience definitely continued some of that activism, but also right. you know, deepened it. I think the other big factor that I really have to name is that I, I became very passionate about the anti-apartheid struggle when I was in high school uh-huh. and had this kind of yearning and dream to go to South Africa. Yeah. And so, um, a year after apartheid ended and Nelson Mandela was elected the first black president, I was able to kind of finagle it to use my scholarship to study abroad (laughs) in a a program in Cape Town. And so, you know, in 1996, I spent a year, well, seven months in Cape Town and then in Durban studying. And it just was an absolutely transformational experience. I mean, the the city was in the throes of such incredible change. And I got to witness one of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings. And, you know, I got to live in a colored township where the community was really wrestling with a lot of these identity issues because many coloreds had been given you know, second-class citizenship under apartheid. And so yeah. some of them distrusted a Black-led country. And so many of them voted for the, for the uh, national party in the first election. And so I, I like, I literally would get in arguments with them because they, I couldn't understand how they could vote for the national party. Right. And they would get in arguments with me because they couldn't understand why I'd want to self-identify as a Black American. Right. in their eyes, I was colored, right? right? So anyway, it was, it was, it, it was really uh, an important formative experience for me. In particular, I discovered this philosophy called Ubuntu, which, you know, kind of originated in Southern Africa. Desmond Tutu, Archbishop of Cape Town, kind of simplified it, but I think this is a powerful definition, that Ubuntu is basically, I am because we are. It is a mm. radical understanding of our interconnection and our interdependence. Yeah. And in my, in my, in my eyes, it's like, you know, the, the golden rule put on steroids, essentially. Right. And so I, I saw, it's not just that I learned about this concept, I saw it. Like I saw many people in communities that were very, very much struggling economically, 
still exhibit Ubuntu with one another in terms of how they shared and how they cared for one another, et cetera. And so I came back and that still very much influenced a lot of my, my work and career. I literally did a leadership program about a year ago called True North. At the end of it, you have to create kind of a purpose statement for your life that can apply to every aspect of your life. You know, after probably a hundred revisions, I boiled it down to this simple statement. You know, my purpose statement is to run a relay race that spreads Ubuntu and builds the beloved community. Hmm. I guess I'm wondering what comes after college for you. Yeah, well, it, I would say two things. One, one is I actually started wrestling with a call to ministry in college and, okay. and didn't really know kind of what to do with it, to be honest. And yeah. by my senior year was really kind of disconnected, feeling alienated from, from my relationship with God. And huh. so I'd applied to the Kennedy School of Government for graduate school okay. to get a master's in public policy, but was realizing I just needed to figure some things out and was feeling spiritually, kind of a spiritual desert. And so I asked for deferral uh-huh. and ended up applying for a program in New York City and called the, the Urban Fellows Program. And ironically, ended up working under the Rudy Giuliani administration. Could never have known how ironic that would become. <laughs> um, but that, that year also was very formative. And I ended up joining, getting very involved in ministry at a black church called Emmanuel Baptist in uh, okay. Brooklyn. And was asked by the pastor to end up leading this young adult Bible study group, or fellowship group, really. Yeah. And he asked me in the year, like, are you sure you should be going to the Kennedy School? I mean, it's a great school, but you know, maybe you should really think about the Divinity School. And so that just accelerated this kind of anxiety and restlessness that I was feeling already. Uh-huh. And so I show up at the Kennedy School of Government, still kind of believing that God had called me for a reason, and then I had this passion for social justice for a reason, but yeah. also couldn't shake the sense that maybe I should be going into to ministry. And so that first year, so, so literally the... As a first year student, you only get one elective class. Okay. And so you have to choose it really wisely. Right. And so I was signed up to take a different course on faith and public policy with uh, this woman named Mary Jo Bain, who left the Clinton administration in protest for uh, around welfare reform okay. and was you know, a Catholic professor teaching about faith and public policy. So I was really excited about that course. But this other friend of mine who had just made pulled me aside and was like, you've got to take a class with this guy, Jim Wallace who's an adjunct professor who's teaching a class on the intersection of faith and politics. And so I was like, you know, he sounds cool. (laughs) Sounds like a good course. (laughs) Let let me give it a shot. And so that is literally how I met Jim. And that's how I discovered Sojourners. And that class, you know, connect the dots around so many things that I was so passionate about. I was still, though, wrestling with this sense of a call to ministry. And so I ended up asking my pastor at the time, Jeff Brown, you know, what would he advise? And he's like, look, uh-huh. I, I don't want to tell you what to do. Only you can know if a call to ministry is real. But over the summer, why don't you try to read the Bible from front to end? And he also recommended that I read these two devotional books by a guy named Henry Fosdeck, who was the pastor at Riverside Church for a while. Okay. One was called The Meeting of Prayer, and the other one was called The Meeting of Service. And so that same year, I had started learning just the harrowing statistics about the catastrophe of HIV and AIDS in Africa, which certainly was yeah. had been a catastrophe in the United States as well. But yeah. by that point, it was devastating South Africa and many other countries that I had visited and, and grown to love right. uh, just a couple of years earlier. And so I just knew in my heart that I had to go and see it for myself. There was this conspiracy of silence around the AIDS pandemic right. and just a 
severe lack of leadership by the Clinton administration at the time yeah. in responding to the, to the crisis. And so I was able to get an internship with this organization called Africare and ended up working on youth prevention programs in Zambia and literally woke up at the crack of dawn, which I kind of do now, but back then that was uh-huh. unheard of for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I would you know, watch the sunset, sunrise, sorry, watch the sunrise and then literally read the Bible from start to finish wow. and then read these devotional books. And so, you know, it was a very emotional, intense summer, but I really did ded- dedicate myself to the spiritual discernment. And I was convinced that God would give me this burning bush experience yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah. And I was starting to get kind of more and more frustrated with God, to be honest. Mm. And it was like, why are you not giving me this answer that I'm looking for? Yeah. And so someone had told me that they had had this revelation after climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And so it just clicked. I was like, that's it. Like God is going to give me my answer if I <laughs> climbed the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Wait, how much of that was like, God is really going to reveal itself? Or how much of it was like, I mean, I'll try it. It sounds fun. I mean, there, there's a daredevil side of me that like <laughs> loves to do challenges like this. So I'm sure this right. gave me a convenient excuse to do it. But I really <laughs> did think that like, yeah, I would get this answer. Yeah. And so, you know, I only had a week to work with and wow. I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And so... I, I get to Tanzania and didn't realize that like you have to pay for every day you're in the national park where the well, Mount, Mount Kilimanjaro is. Uh-huh. You got to pay for a guide, even if you don't feel like you need one. Right. And you, do need, you do need one, by the way. Okay. Anyone else yeah. is foolhardy and wants to do this in the future. So I was kind of foolhardy enough to try to think that I could do it in three days. And, and most people take five or more because you need enough time for your body to acclimate. Right. It's not so much that you can't physically do it in three days, but like literally your body is going to shut down, right. which is exactly what happened to mine. Oh my gosh. So like day two, I get to the last rest stop, but I was seriously suffering from altitude sickness. I, mean, I had a fever oh of 103. I couldn't hold down any food. It was, I was a hot mess. Oh my gosh. So this doctor, Swedish doctor, tried to convince me not to set up for the set off for the summit, but I was so convinced that God was going to give me this answer. Right, God's at the summit. I got it. God's at the summit. That's right. So because of the air quality is thicker at night than it is in the morning, you set off for the summit at midnight. Huh. And so I have my little headlamp on, and I'm going up with my guide to the top. And I really did put everything I had into it, but ended up collapsing after about three hours, about halfway up. Oh my gosh. And literally like, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but, but did put my life at, you know, yeah, I I tested the boundaries of, of, of life, if you will. And I went into this kind of somewhat half conscious state. I don't think I was completely knocked out, but I was definitely, you know, not in my senses either. And I didn't hear like a a distinctive voice per se, but I, I felt God's presence like profoundly in that, in that moment. And I did feel like I was having this conversation with God, maybe it was through prayer, but kind of heard God's answer in a a somewhat different way. And I I basically was arguing with God. I was like, why did you take me all the way up to the top of this mountain to basically leave me and and not give me the answer that I wanted? Right. The response I got back is like, I didn't take you up here. I mean, this this was was like all you're doing (laughs) and you are taking yourself way too seriously. I mean, you, you basically have created in your mind, in your spirit, this false dichotomy or false choice between ministry and activism. And the whole reason I have made you passionate about activism is because of your call to ministry. Wow. And it just clicked that like my specific call to ministry is, was, and continues to be to engage the church to become a vehicle for justice. And, you know, I kind of snapped out of that, whatever state I was in, got up, turned around, walked back down the mountain and just felt so much joy, so much lightness, so much purpose. 
And, you know, I'm not saying that it's like been all smooth sailing ever since, but <laughs> right. it, it definitely like cleared up this kind of spiritual and existential crisis that I had been in. Sure. And so I ended up getting licensed in the ministry that next uh, winter. Got took me a, a while to kind of finish divinity school because I was working full time at Sojourners over this next period, but got ordained in 2009 yeah. and, you know, haven't looked back. That is such a remarkable experience. There's got to be some some sermon illustration in there that we think God is at the summit, but God meets us along the way. That's like my, that's the whole point of the podcast. It's funny. I, I didn't. Yeah. So Adam, you have this amazing experience at, on uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, and then you go into ministry. You get licensed for ministry, and you sort of start on this ministry and activism career. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even before, well, I guess right after I got licensed, I. You know, I'd come back from this very intense experience in Zambia working on HIV and AIDS prevention programs. Mm. And I saw both the devastation of the crisis, but also the real sense of heroism. Um, so many people showing incredible love and resilience and you know, real courage yeah. in addressing the, the pandemic. And I, I had a chance to attend the International AIDS Conference, which happens every two years. And it was being hosted in South Africa for the first time in Durban. And the theme of the conference was breaking the silence. And so I went there and it was an incredible experience. But I realized just listening to all the speeches and kind of engaging in that whole conference that there really was a conspiracy of silence around the crisis of AIDS, Mm. a conspiracy of stigma, of shame, and of political negligence, to be honest. Right. And actually at that conference... I met Jeff Sachs for the first time, uh-huh. who will become important in a second. I met Paul <laughs> Farmer and Dr. Jim Kim, who were leading Partners in Health, which is an organization that really tries to put in practice a preferential option for the poor in terms of healthcare. And I came back just really morally indignant that there was so little awareness and so little leadership in the U.S. at that time. Yeah. The Clinton administration, unfortunately, was doing very little. So I ended up Kind of talking a lot about what I experienced and what I thought needed to be done. And I found other students who were also waking up to this crisis. And we started realizing that the AIDS crisis was going to be a defining crisis for our generation. Yeah. And so we um, kind of launched on a shoestring a organization that was called Global Justice. And its first major campaign became the Student Global AIDS Campaign. Okay. And we got a C grant um, through, a connect, through the Connection with uh, Professor Jeff Sachs, who was teaching at Harvard at the time. And in many ways, you know, global justice had a very ambitious mission, but it was trying to make globalization work for the poorest and most marginalized in the world Mm. and to really advance human rights and to fight poverty. And we felt like the AIDS crisis was like that that fulcrum issue that, you know, really had to be addressed if we were going to be successful in addressing a whole series of other issues. And pretty quickly, we're able to kind of inspire a whole network of college campuses around the country that were engaged in AIDS activism. So we, you know, really pressured the pharmaceutical industry to try to increase access to AIDS drugs and reduce the price of AIDS drugs. We pushed with many others to get Congress and the, and the Clinton administration to create the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria. And then ultimately, we're part of a bigger coalition that pressured the Bush administration to create a major initiative, which became PEPFAR, the President's Emergency AIDS Plan. And literally, that initiative, I think, has been the crowning achievement of the Bush administration yeah. and is responsible for helping to save over 11 million lives right. in Southern Africa. And so I had this early experience of like, 
seeing the power of activism of like, you know, the unsexy things like <laughs> writing letters <laughs> and making phone calls and doing lobby yeah. visits yeah and realize that like that really is the tools of our democracy. Sure. I mean, obviously protests matter as well. And I certainly engaged in plenty of protests, but, you know, building this relationship of accountability with your member of Congress really can make a difference. And uh, that, that whole experience, I think, was a, a real learning curve for me because I, ex- I didn't plan to start a nonprofit out of grad school, but I just <laughs> right. felt like a number of events conspired yeah. and uh, kind of thrust me into the role. But what I realized is after, after kind of building and growing global justice for about three years, I was really feeling this restlessness about how to further apply my call to ministry to my work. I mean, Global Justice was a values-driven organization, but it was not a faith-based organization. And I was getting more involved in the church. Yeah. And it's the same time that, that Jim Wallace put out his book that became a bestseller, God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. Yeah. And I just felt like it was a critical moment to try to get back involved in faith-based work. And so I ended up joining Sojourners, leaving Global Justice. It took about a year to make the transition, but ended up leaving and joined Sojourners as the political director to really try to help Sojourners ramp up its mobilizing and its advocacy work. My question, Adam, is I think there are a lot of people that see the problems and see the issues that are going on, but what is it about you that you see the problem and you refuse to quit in addressing the problem, even to the point of starting nonprofit organizations that mobilize thousands and thousands of people, what is it in you that refuses to give up or give in? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think it ties into some of my sense of responsibility okay. in, in the sense of our generation, Generation X, and really subsequent generations as well, inherit the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. And mm. to me, that movement was global. It wasn't just about civil rights in the United States. I mean, when, when Dr. King received the Nobel Peace Prize, I believe in 1963, mm. he talked about how he had the audacity to believe that we could create a world where essentially no one was hungry, everyone could live in dignity. I mean, he was basically describing a world where human rights were operative and human dignity flourished. Yeah. You know, that is part of what drives me. I also just have been a student of history and have seen and, and learned how religion and Christian faith in particular at its best is meant to be at the forefront of pushing for social and political transformation. Mm. That, you know, we're not meant to be on the sidelines. That political social engagement is a requirement of Christian discipleship. And of course, there are ways to engage that are really counterproductive and and undermine and corrupt faith. And there's ways to engage that, you know, are really transformational. And of course, you know, I've tried to embrace the transformational side. But there's a a quote by King that I, I really love to, share. And it actually became kind of the bedrock of my first book, which came out in 2010 called Mobilizing Hope. And in a sermon out of a book that I highly recommend called Strength to Love, mm-hmm. Dr. King kind of did a remix of, of Romans, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your minds. Uh-huh. And his version is the saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of a conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. Wow. And it's kind of a mouthful, but what I love about this quote is I really believe that following Christ, this kind of you know, radical Palestinian <laughs> Jew uh-huh. who you know really turned things upside down in his time, yeah. requires that we be creatively maladjusted to the world around us, particularly 
you know, trying to embrace the fruits of the spirit and embrace the beatitudes, which really is like the Magna Carta of how we're supposed to be living in the world. Yeah. And to be transformed, nonconformist. So it's not just about having different attitudes. It's about actually putting those into practice, putting them into action. And so that is kind of what has driven me and given me the sense that, you know, if we really believe that all things are possible in Christ and that on the cross, Christ didn't just defeat sin, Christ defeated injustice, which is a form of sin, then, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, we are Christ's agents for transformation in the world. And so I I think, you know, my faith has certainly driven and kind of charged my activism and kind of given me hope in times that often feel hopeless Mm -hmm. or in causes that often feel insurmountable. And uh, I think, you know, my sense of history that I stand on the backs of a lot of broad shoulders who didn't give up and kind of paved the way for the work that we all need to continue. So you had mentioned that you left Global Justice and then went to work for Sojourners. And recently you just became the president of Sojourners. I know that in between those two things, there was actually a whole career that was built um, outside of Sojourners. So I'd love to hear the story of just your time leaving Sojourners, but then also coming back and becoming the new president. Yeah. I spent four years at Sojourners as a political director, and they were really meaningful years. Um, Did a lot of work to strengthen the campaigning of, of the organization, the advocacy organization. We were one of the early organizations that was mobilizing opposition to the Iraq war. We did a lot of around trying to unite the church in the fight against poverty. Mm. Uh, we actually brought a coalition, but we helped convince then, you know, the three leading Democratic candidates for the 20, 2008 election, Clinton, Edwards, and Obama, to all commit to a goal of cutting poverty in half in the United States over 10 years. Mm. Unfortunately, the economic crisis that we <laughs> entered into just around that time kind of made that goal almost impossible to achieve. Right. But I got really inspired by the Obama campaign. And I, I had always had the sense in my kind of spirit and my, my mind that at some point, it'd be important for me to serve in government. I had I'd served, as I mentioned earlier, for a year in New York City government, which is very different. But mm-hmm. I felt like to be a more effective advocate and change agent, I really need to understand how decisions get made on the inside, how the, the gears work in the inside of government at the federal level. And so I had known from some friends about a program called the White House Fellowship, which has been around since Lyndon Johnson. Uh-huh. And it's a very competitive, very prestigious program where about 15 or so people that are in their mid-career, essentially, from all different sectors yeah. are you know, essentially uh, selected to, to serve at a very high level in the administration. In the course of the year, you have seminars with pretty much every cabinet secretary and business leaders and with the president, first lady. Mm-hmm. I applied for this. Thought it was going to be a long shot, but got to the gauntlet and was selected to be <laughs> in the first uh, class of White House fellows under the Obama administration. Wow. And so I left Sojourners to do that and had just a whirlwind year. I mean, it, it really was an incredible experience. It was challenging, yeah. but it was, it was incredible. And got to serve in the White House Office of Cabinet Affairs, Intergovernmental Affairs, and Public Engagement. It's funny because actually, and I'm not just saying this because he's president now, but literally the most meaningful conversation that had the biggest impression on me was meeting Vice President Biden at the time. Wow, It's kind of a funny story because I, I worked in the White House, so I had a what's called a blue badge, so I could kind of move around the White House unencumbered. But okay. many of the fellows were working in the cabinet agencies. And so we were meeting Biden on a frigid day in the winter, and half the class got stranded at the security gate. And for whatever reason, their information hadn't been put in correctly. Oh. And so I was 
already inside the vice president's office. And he was kind of asking what was going on and realized that half our class was stranded outside. So he literally walks outside wow. with no coat on. The Secret Service is like chasing after him because, you know, like every movement <laughs> is like choreographed or is at right. least, you know, predicted. And so he just marches out there and starts barking at these security guards. I mean, in a, not in a hostile way, but just like, right. th- these people are with me, just let them in. <laughs> like, right. Don't worry about the security stuff, just let them in. And so he then escorted us, them back. We were all, 15 of us were crammed into his, his office. And we literally spent two hours wow. talking to the vice president about pretty much everything. I mean, politics, but also values and his family. And it just was a remarkable conversation. And what I yeah. realized is how much dignity and humanity and empathy mm. he had. And, you know, we will see how he governs and we'll see how he leads. But I am very convinced about his character and his integrity and his empathy. Yeah. And you know, I definitely experienced that firsthand. So, so anyway, I came out of the White House Fellowship and was feeling kind of pulled more back into the international realm. Okay. I've always had this push and pull across my career yeah. and kind of focusing on racial and economic justice in the United States and focusing on fighting poverty and promoting human rights around the world. So I, I was kind of moving back in this international direction and had worked with World Vision when I was at Sojourners. And kind of out of the blue, they they reached out and the vice president in charge of advocacy for uh, World Vision US uh, was leaving. And he reached out and wondered if I might be interested in replacing him uh, coming into his role. Yeah. And so ended up having a conversation with Rich Stearns and hit it off and got offered the position. So I ended up working at World Vision for about three years. And that was also a remarkable period. I have a lot of love and respect for World Vision and its mission. I have a passion for ensuring that kids around the world can realize their full potential and flourish. Yeah. And was able to do some work with the Obama administration, given some of the relationships I'd built and, you know, really trying to push the Obama administration around its commitment to fighting poverty and, and was also in some of the conversations about what should succeed what are called the Millennium Development Goals. And so there was a you know, whole debate about what that agenda should look like. And so mm-hmm. was involved in trying to shape that and make it as bold and as ambitious as possible. And then President Obama very unexpectedly nominated Dr. Jim Kim, who at the time was the president of Dartmouth College, to be the president of the World Bank and kind of took Hmm. me by surprise and many others because he wasn't your traditional World Bank president in terms of his resume. But, you know, he he came in and I, I was in a meeting representing World Vision with other NGO leaders with Dr. Kim. And he was casting this really bold vision for the World Bank, really making the argument that for too long the World Bank had shown a preferential option for economic growth and not enough <laughs> a preferential option for the poor. Yeah. And, you know, we reconnected because I had known him back from my time at Harvard and he actually had served on the Board of Global Justice for a year. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of months and I was notified to see if I'd be interested in serving in some capacity at the World Bank. And that kind of evolved into a role of helping the World Bank revitalize its engagement and partnership building efforts with faith-based organizations around the world and with religious Mm. communities. And, you know, it's it's kind of ironic because back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I had been with Dr. Kim and others protesting the World Bank around the issue of debt cancellation <laughs> and structural adjustment. And I never thought that I would be working inside of it, but you know, God has a sense of humor. So I uh, yeah. ended up taking a step of faith and joined the World Bank, leading what became the Faith Initiative mm-hmm. and spent almost four years um, doing that work. 
So did that for four years. And then on the morning of the election, something just broke in my spirit. So the election of, of uh, 2016, yeah. I knew in that moment that I couldn't stay at the World Bank as much as it was a great job. Huh. I, I felt like I had to get back into the faith-based world and you know really try to both push back against some of the things that I thought the Trump administration was going to do, but also you know really try to it's funny to use this language now, but to restore the soul of the country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, I felt like our soul was at stake and I needed to be more involved. I had to be all in. And so I ended up giving my notice and I'd already been in conversation with Jim Wallace about coming back at some point. And he had uh-huh. invited me that he saw me as his natural successor, which was really flattering. Yeah. And so before I made a decision, actually, I, I spent a good number of months in deep discernment. I actually went on a retreat in New Mexico at Ghost Ranch, where I spent almost a week fasting and praying because I really wanted mm. to be clear in my spirit that this is what God was calling me to do. Yeah. I didn't want to just do it because it was something I knew or it was convenient. And in that week, God really did convict my, my spirit that this was you know, kind of the next best thing for me to fulfill my calling. And so I ended up coming back to Sojourners as the executive director. And Jim and I kind of entered into a multi-year transition and, you know, replacing a founder of 50 years is not easy. (laughs) So that takes time and it takes intentionality. And so, you know, we kind of went through a number of years where in a lot of ways we were co-leading the organization. Jim was clearly president. Uh And then uh, in November of this last year, I was appointed by the board to be president and Jim continues with us as an ambassador and he'll always be the founder and, you know, always have a strong connection to the organization, but he's going to be moving on in the fall to start a new center at Georgetown University and be a full-time professor there as well. So I'm really wow. excited about this next venture and step for Jim and also, you know, just really humbled and grateful to be able to serve as president in this next season. Do you think we're making progress as Christians in incorporating activism and justice into our discipleship? I think it's a really uneven playing field or kind of mixed bag, if you will. I think there's been progress in some pockets. And then I think there's actually been backward movement in in many places in the church. Um, I'll, I'll try to unpack that a little bit. So I think there's been a resurgence of a you know, kind of muscular religious right perspective uh-huh. that unfortunately, in my view, basically entered into a Faustian bargain with President Trump mm. once he got elected, even before he got elected, helped to get him elected. And in their calculation, as long as President Trump appointed conservative justices and protected liber- religious liberty and, you know, was very anti-abortion, very pro-life, yeah, they would ignore all of his other indistractions, his amoral character, his undermining of democracy, right. his appeals to, to racism and sexism, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not arguing that the issue of abortion is not an important one. It's a very important one to me. Right. But we can't, as Christians, be single issue voters. And from my perspective, and this is why I was in such anguish when President Trump got elected, it wasn't because he was a Republican or even because he was conservative, although I, I don't think he's even a very consistent conservative, is <laughs> because the you know, essentially his stoking of these worst sides of America should have been deal breakers. You know, his appeals to racism and to white supremacy really should have been a deal breaker for the vast majority of Christians. And it just wasn't. And so, you know, I think we are still wrestling with, we being the church, with America's original sin. And racism is a form of idolatry. And sadly, the Christian faith, the Bible, was used to justify slavery, to give 
slave owners a pass to kind of exonerate their guilt and to essentially argue that slaves were not human. They were not made in the image of God. And so I think we're still, you know, dealing with and having to repent for that history. And, you know, if we kind of fast forward all the way up to the present, you know, there is a part of the church that sadly is just not willing to face that. It still kind of thinks that, you know, racism is a thing of the past or isn't a really important issue or is only about isolated negative comments that people make. And clearly it is so much bigger than that. It's ingrained in our systems and our policies and our attitudes, et cetera. I think there's also kind of the the flip side of that is a lot of churches who just have gotten disgusted with politics and feel like any engagement of politics will corrupt their faith. So their solution is to just remove themselves from politics, to be apolitical, to make church kind of an apolitical space. And I understand why many have gone that direction, but I think that's also kind of misguided and in some ways not reflective of the gospel. Because if we really believe that Jesus is Lord over every facet of our lives, that has to include our economic and political life as well. And following Christ has profound implications for our politics and our social lives and even our economic life. And so that doesn't mean that you know, there's only one way to apply the priorities and values of Jesus to our politics. But I do think that, you know, we are required to be engaged, particularly in a democracy. As flawed as our democracy is, it still is a democracy. And if we decide not to vote, we are essentially endorsing the status quo. If we decide that we are going to make our churches into this kind of apolitical space, we are, you know, essentially relinquishing our prophetic voice and we are again, kind of endorsing or being complicit with the status quo. So Adam, what word of advice would you give to faith leaders that are scared to enter into the political conversation? Because I've talked to so many pastor friends who say, you know, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. The moment I talk about anything, half of my church feels alienated. People will, will write emails and say, politics should not be part of the church. And so I think there's a lot of forced apathy in a way of these faith leaders who don't know what are the right first steps to engage and merge the spiritual conversation and a political one. What word of advice would you give to them? It's a great question. And I wish there was a magic bullet <laughs> answer to that. <laughs> but let, let me, let me, let me give it a, give it a test. Step one, climb Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> right. It's almost that, that simple. <laughs> Richard, you know my pastor, yeah. Howard John Wesley. Yeah. I, I serve at Alfred Street Baptist Church just outside of Washington, D.C. And, you know, he is a brilliant preacher. One of the things I think he does really effectively when he's, particularly when he's giving a sermon that he knows is going to be controversial or, or might tackle some social and political issues, is he says, my job as your pastor is not to convince you to think the way I think or to vote the way I vote. My job is to try to help you and, you know, in some cases, cajole you to think more mm-hmm. critically and theologically about the very issues that matter the most, that affect our community, our nation, our world, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I find that to be very disarming because, and very true, right? right. Like if, if a pastor goes in and is like, I'm going to try to convince everyone to vote a particular way or to think exactly the way I think, I think they're going to set themselves up for division and, and frustration. Right. But if they go in thinking, I want to try to expand how people people understand issues and how they, I want to sharpen the lens that they use to interpret the world around them. I want to give them a toolbox so that they can sift through what is false 
and what is real. Yeah. And, and this is particularly needed, needed in this era of kind of post-truth and disinformation. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are bombarded by a lot of lies and disinformation, and they're often living in their own bubbles. And so I think the church could be one of these anecdotes that really provides a space where we can, you know, try to share what we understand to be the truth and have some some real dialogue about it. So that's, that's, that's kind of point number one. Point two yeah. is I think we need some first order principles that really should not be controversial in the church. For example, to me, it's crystal clear from the Old Testament prophets all the way through Jesus mm-hmm. that God has a particular concern for the poor, the more marginalized, and the vulnerable. You know, the Old Testament emphasis on orphans, the stranger, the the dispossessed. Uh-huh. And so, you know, we may have different political solutions for how to care for and protect those folks, but those folks should be at the very center of our concern, the very center of our politics. And as we know, our politics often centers the wealthy, it centers those who can write political checks, it centers many other forces and people, not so much the most marginalized and the vulnerable. Right. So imagine if the church, you know, unified around that cause. And again, like, there could be healthy disagreements about how that then gets applied to a whole range of different public policies. But if we could get both political parties, Republican and Democrats, to prioritize protecting and caring for those who are at the margins and those who are struggling, that would be a revolutionary change. Yeah, I think more and more pastors and faith leaders need to model what Christian engagement with politics looks like. And when we don't talk about it, when we don't address it, we're sort of modeling ignorance. We're modeling apathy, regardless of how you personally feel about it. But if it's never coming up from your pulpit, if it's never coming up in your teaching, then you're de facto teaching people that spirituality and politics are completely separate and one has nothing to do with the other. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, now is like the the perfect time for the church to assert that kind of engagement. There's, There's no better time. Adam has lived his whole life bringing things together and bridging over gaps. From his biracial birth to his work of bringing activism and discipleship into the conversation of the church, his passion and leadership have led him on hikes of mountains, marches in streets, and forging new paths for others to follow behind him. And as he said, there is no better time for the church to join in. You can find Adam on Twitter, at Rev Adam Taylor, and you can find his book in the show notes. Also, you should read what Sojourners is putting out and follow them on social as well. Thank you so much for listening to The Pursuit. I have been reading through all your messages that you've been sending through social and have been so encouraged. Please do continue to reach out. You can reach us at The Pursuit Cast on social. Now, as we go... Remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God along the path. But if anyone you know, wants to accuse me of being partisan one way or the other, I, I can put that on my resume. 